This is Eli Lake, and you're listening to The Reeducation. The topic today is guns, and our guest is Stephen Butowski, the founder and editor of The Reload. On Tuesday, a demonic 18-year-old man named Salvador Ramos committed mass murder at an elementary school in Nuvalde, Texas. Armed with two AR-15 assault rifles he purchased on his 18th birthday, Ramos shot his grandmother in the face, drove his car into a ditch, and then went on a rampage. At the reunification center in Uvalde, Texas, not even holding their children could break parents' grief. The massacre of 19 elementary school students and two teachers had even first responders seeking comfort. The overwhelming loss of young lives prompting tears and anger. As a new father, I cannot imagine the pain, the loss, the anger the parents of the 19 children who were killed must be feeling. It is a national trauma, and sadly, a familiar one. Columbine, Sandy Hook, Parkland, and now Ubalde. School massacres are becoming a fact of modern life in America. In moments like this, we crave an explanation, and we crave a scapegoat. Simply acknowledging that there is evil in the world and we cannot prevent all evil acts unsettles us. We want to believe that with the right laws or procedures, we can prevent the next Salvador Ramos or Adam Lanza. Here's Joe Biden on Tuesday evening. As a nation, we have to ask, when in God's name are we going to stand up to the gun lobby? When in God's name we do what we all know in our gut needs to be done. I am sick and tired of it. We have to act. And don't tell me we can't have an impact on this carnage. I spent my career as a senator and a vice president working to pass common sense gun laws. We can and won't prevent every tragedy, but we know they work and have positive impact. When we passed the assault weapons ban, mass shootings went down. When the law expired, mass shootings tripled. The idea that an 18-year-old kid can walk into a gun store and buy two assault weapons is just wrong. For Biden and his party, the blame for the shooting rests with the gun lobby and the Republicans too cowardly to confront it. And it's an appealing message after a tragedy in some ways, but it's also deceptive and simplistic. To start, there's no chance that there are enough votes in the Senate, at least, to pass a federal gun ban on assault rifles. And even if that was possible, how would the government collect more than 20 million rifles already owned by private citizens in the United States? This says nothing of the constitutionality of banning long guns given that the Supreme Court in 2008 struck down a law banning handguns in Washington, D.C. as a violation of the Second Amendment, noting that it was a constitutional right to own a gun for lawful reasons such as self-defense, it's unlikely a federal ban on the AR-15 would survive the conservative Supreme Court. Also, a recent study of mass shootings between 1966 through through 2019 by the National Institute of Justice found that more than 77% of the shooters used handguns and 25% used assault rifles. More alarming, 
77% of the shooters in the study purchased at least one of their guns legally. Now let's look at the National Rifle Association. Biden's comments on the NRA have an element of truth. With more than 5 million dues-paying members, the organization is effective at advocating for gun rights at the state, local, and federal level. At the same time, the NRA is reeling. It's much weaker today than it was five years ago. In 2020, New York Attorney General Letitia James sued the organization and ordered it dissolved because of the corruption of its national leadership. This forced the NRA to file bankruptcy in 2021 in an effort to reform the organization in the more gun-friendly state of Texas. In March, a Manhattan judge for New York State overturned the order for the NRA to disband. Nonetheless, the NRA today is both diminished and besmirched. The problem for gun control advocates is not the NRA's fundraising. It pales in comparison to most other large lobbies. It's that there are millions of law-abiding Americans who seek to own guns and assault rifles, too, for lawful reasons. And the Supreme Court has affirmed their right to bear arms. Republican lawmakers are not afraid of a lobby. They are responding to their voters. With that in mind, some have pressed for a more modest approach. Southern California, now we have children murdered at school. And we could do something. I'm tired and I'm so tired of getting up here and offering condolences to to the devastated families that are out there. I'm so tired of the excuse me, I'm sorry. I'm tired of the Moments of silence. Enough. There's 50 senators right now who refuse to vote on HR8, which is a background check rule that the House passed a couple of years ago. It's been sitting there for two years. And there's a reason they will vote on it, to hold on to power. So I ask you, Mitch McConnell, I ask all of you senators who refuse to do anything about the violence and school shootings and supermarket shootings, I ask you, are you going to put your own desire for power ahead of the lives of children, elderly, churchgoers? Because that's what it looks like. That was Steve Kerr, the coach of the Golden State Warriors. Like Biden, he faults Republicans for failing to support H.R. 8, which would impose more background checks on people seeking to purchase guns. But Democrats have controlled the Senate since 2021, and have not put HRA to a vote. What's more, Ramos and the mass shooter in Buffalo this month passed background checks, and they purchased their instruments of death legally. A variation of this approach are known as red flag laws. They empower family members, school officials, or the police to alert a court if a person displays psychotic tendencies, and that they are deemed mentally unstable the court can confiscate their guns and bar them from purchasing more of them for a period of time. David French in the Dispatch made a compelling case for these laws on Wednesday. He correctly points out that in most cases, mass shooters will telegraph their plans ahead of time. Something like this happened with Ramos, who shared his fiendish plans on Facebook right before carrying them out. If someone in his community had picked up the signals, perhaps the tragedy 
would have been prevented. In practice, though, it's unclear whether these measures work. The murderer in Buffalo was hospitalized for mental illness before his massacre, and New York has red flag laws on the books, yet no one flagged him. So what should we do? Well, there are three options as I see it, and none of them are necessarily appealing. The first is that we accept the trade-offs inherent in a free society. We understand that we will just have to live with mass shootings in a country of more than 350 million people. There has been evil in the world since the dawn of man, and no government can legislate it away. The right of an individual to protect his or her home and family means accepting the risk that psychopaths will also be able to purchase guns. We could impose a strict regime to quarantine the mentally ill. This may not stop every mass shooter, but it would give families, police, and others the ability to institutionalize the insane before they harm themselves and others. Here, too, there are trade-offs. The Soviet Union, for example, institutionalized political dissidents. This is a power that both the state and a family can abuse, and it is one that should be watched. Finally, gun control advocates could begin organizing to repeal the Second Amendment. That is politically challenging, but no great movement for social change is easy. As New York Times columnist and former re-education guest Brett Stevens wrote in 2017, Americans who claim to be outraged by gun crimes should want to do something more than tinker at the margins of a legal regime that most of the developed world rightly considers nuts. They should want to change it fundamentally and permanently. What politicians should stop doing, though, is telling us every time there is a massacre at a school, a supermarket, or a movie theater, that a new law could have prevented the tragedy, but didn't because the opposition is too cowardly and corrupt. That's a demagogue's promise, and it isn't true. Excuse me. Excuse me. <laughs> Excuse me. Sit down. You're out of you're out of line and an embarrassment. Sit down. I don't like this. The next shooting is right now, and you are doing nothing. No, he needs to get his ass out of here. This isn't the place to talk to this over. This is totally predictable. When you, sir, you're out of line. Sir, you are out of line. Sir, you are out of line. Please leave this auditorium. I can't believe you're a sick son of a bitch that would come to a deal like this to make a political issue. Millions of Americans believe they have a right to own their guns. The Supreme Court agrees with them. If you believe that this right is too costly, that the risk of private gun ownership is too great, then acknowledge the long road ahead to changing it and get to work persuading the gun owners to change their minds. Well, we are now delighted to have with us Stephen Gutowski, who is the editor and founder of The Reload, which is really one of the smartest and, you know, I would say most journalistic kind of outlets that are that's out there right now with regards to all of the issues having to do with gun control and the debate in the country right now. Stephen is 
not an ideologue, although he has very strong opinions on the Second Amendment and the right to bear arms. But I wanted to have him on today because he is really one of the most knowledgeable people we could have to discuss what to do in the aftermath of the horrible, horrible tragedy in Texas. Stephen, thanks so much for joining the re-education. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. Well, I want to start by asking you at this point, what are kind of practical and plausible efforts that can be taken on state and federal level, you know, that could maybe prevent future mass shootings like this? Well, that's uh, that's the key question, right? I guess that everybody wants to know. I don't know that I have a simple solution for for these sorts of uh, these sorts of horrible attacks, but certainly you could point to things like red flag laws or involuntary commitment in certain situations. Th- this attack is, I think, more difficult to find a easy turnkey solution to how you could have prevented this particular uh, gunman from carrying out his attack. Certainly Buffalo, it's a little bit more obvious given that he had a history of of, of making serious threats, expressing homicidal intentions, and was in fact taken by police to be evaluated. But the problem there is that in New York, they actually have a red flag law. They have an assault weapons ban and universal background checks as well. All these things that people are going to be talking about as a solution. And the red flag law wasn't used. He was able to pass a background check, as was this shooter in Texas, because he didn't have a disqualifying criminal record or mental health record. And universal background checks wouldn't have made any any difference in that situation, in either of these situations either, because they, they bought from licensed dealers, whereas universal background check targets uh, private sales between unlicensed individuals. But... An assault weapons ban as well. You know, both of these shooters used AR-15s in this case, though the, that's not the most common firearm used in in these types of mass shootings. Certainly, it's been used in a number of high-profile ones. But again, in New York, the, they have an assault weapons ban. The, he, the shooter there bought a New York legal version of an AR-15 and then illegally modified it. So, it's just with these things, it's it's very hard to pick out. A, like, a, here's a single simple policy that's going to solve all of our problems. Even though that's what everyone wants, I mean, that's, I would love that to be the case too. Nobody wants to experience these things. They're horrific for everyone who watches them. Nobody, nobody wants anything like this to happen. But unfortunately, the solutions are, are very difficult to, you know, come up with. You probably need a combination of a lot of different policies that all have their own trade-offs. Well, I want to start with talking about elements of Joe Biden's uh, speech last night. The first is my question to you is that he is proposing a new an assault weapons ban. There was one in the 1990s. My question is, is that even possible in Congress? You know, given the fact that we have rager, you know, it's 50 50 in the Senate and very, you know, very close margins in the House. You know, is there any chance that we would see a sort of federal law to that effect? Probably not at this moment, just from the political realities of the situation. You, in fact, I think CNN had just interviewed Marco Rubio, exactly this question of, and he said it wouldn't have prevented the the shootings. And so he doesn't view it as 
uh, something he would support when you would need 10 Republicans, of course, and Rubio would probably be one of those types who might uh, be willing to vote for gun control legislation. Now, obviously, it's the, literally the day after this happened. So it's hard to know exactly what the fallout is going to be. This is obviously one of the worst shootings in American history. You know, we're talking about 19 elementary school kids being murdered. You don't know exactly what the fallout is going to be politically, but if it follows that recent history, it's unlikely that you're you're going to get to an assault weapons ban. Certainly that would be a harder reach, I think, than, you know, something like universal background checks, because, you know, if you can look at even during the Biden administration, what the history has been with the assault weapons ban, uh, that there there's one proposed in the house and Senate, but neither one has come for a vote. And I mean, the house kind of gives away the, the, the reality there. If the house can't, which is controlled by Democrats, can't pass an assault weapons ban, can't even bring it up for a vote then that probably gives you a good indication of what the political realities are surrounding it. Just really quick, can you make make the argument against an assault weapon ban? I mean, you know, Joe Biden has that line, there aren't deers in Kevlar vests, assuming that people would buy weapons only for hunting, which right. is, I think, probably not true in the vast majority of cases, that they're used for self-defense. But, I, you know, you know this issue inside and out. Mm-hmm. You know, to somebody who's just sort of looking at this and saying, I don't understand it. They don't have assault weapons in Australia. They don't have assault weapons in most of Europe and they don't have these mass shootings. So what the hell? Why can't we just do this? What's the argument for why we can't? Yeah, I mean, look, one of the major issues with uh, why you practically can't enact an assault weapons ban, even even when we had done it back in the 90s, is that they're they're much more popular with Americans now than ever before these sorts of rifles that, that get targeted, the AR-15 in particular, right? That's the most popular rifle in the country. There's 18 million of them in circulation, which I know uh, probably people hear that and they, they think, well, that's a big number, but I don't think there really is a good grasp of what that actually means in, in, in reality. Because if you look at the small arms survey, which is a, a survey done by a, a think tank in, in Europe, which tries to estimate how many guns there are in the world and who owns them and, and so forth. And their most recent estimates from 2018, that this is where if you commonly hear people talk about how there are more guns than people in America, this is this, this is where they're getting that stat. But as much as people understand that's a big number, what I don't think they understand is the context of that. So there are approximately 1 million firearms owned by small arms by police in the United States. That's the entire police force of the entire country. The military is, I believe, is at 4 million. The entire world's military, militaries own about 133 million, which means that American civilians, which are at about 400 million, own three times as many guns as all of the world's militaries combined. Just, just to give like context to the, if you're talking, well, even if you believe that the answer here is to ban all the assault weapons uh, and then buy them back like Australia did or something right. and, and uh, you know, or force people to turn them in, right. As, as Aust- that Australian model that everybody talks about. Well, in America, there's 18 million, uh, there's estimated from the National Shooting Sports Foundation estimates there's 18 million of these 
they call them modern sporting rifles. There's obviously a lot of fighting over definitions and terms, but that's similar to what would be under an assault weapons ban in most cases. Now that the definition there varies from state to state where it's enacted, you know, I'm sure we don't want to go too far down the rabbit hole there, but even if 90% of people turned in willingly their AR-15s tomorrow, you'd still have twice as many AR-15s alone on the street, even with 90% removed, as the entire country's law enforcement has guns total. Mm. Just to give you some, like, that's, this is the practical world we're living in, regardless of how you feel about these guns. But I, I can give you, like, why, do, why, is, why is it so popular, right? Why are there so many? Yeah. Well, they're, they're, I mean, they're, they're very useful firearms for a lot of different sorts of, of things, right? They're, they're very light and compact and modular. So you can change, you can, you can really modify your gun to be set up in a way to do all sorts of different kinds of shooting, whether it's like long distance accuracy, you can build an AR for that. You can build an AR for close quarters. Mm-hmm. Uh, home defense, and, you know, moving around your home, you can build one for different kinds of competition shooting that people like to participate in. You can build one for hunting, different types of hunting, even though, as you alluded to, hunting is really not the main reason why people buy any guns anymore. The main reason is switched towards self-defense. What's why handguns have actually become much more popular over the last several decades here. There's a, a, just a recent ATF report on that that fact, but you know, it, they're popular because they're, they're useful. They're well-known that obviously they were employed. A similar design has been used by the military for decades. It's a similar reason why the 1911 handgun is so popular because that was also uh, the army sidearm for decades. So you have a lot of people who were in the military use this platform, know how to manipulate it, know how to, to perform mm-hmm. with it. And so that's another reason why it's popular. Uh, but it's, well, it, you know, there there can be things that are popular, and there can be segments of the country that like something. But if mm-hmm. you know, if if you can you could make the case to to sort of steel man the argument on the other side that it's just the trade off is too much. We can't keep seeing kids getting mowed down like this because if mm-hmm. they are available, sociopaths will purchase them. And they will use them for great evil. Right. Yeah. I mean, obviously that's, that's the counter argument is that, you know, you see these guns, these, this type of firearm, the AR-15 in particular being used in a lot of high profile mass shootings. And while, you know, you can certainly talk about the statistics of it, there was an NIJ. I saw that it's that 37% that is of our, of the mass shootings are handguns. Yeah. Handguns. Right. So, uh, you know. But there's obviously a difference between looking at a sort of a sterile, sterile report that looks over 50 years of mass shootings and gives you stats on what was used. And I mean, that's perhaps the right way to make law, but, but it's obviously going to be very different than the debate we're having the day after somebody uses the gun to, to murder a bunch of children, right? So I understand the impulse, certainly, to just say, well, this was used in Sandy Hook and you know, Las Vegas and this most recent shooting in Texas, you know, why don't we just ban this particular gun? And, you know, I I think it just goes back to, well, one, like what, 
Well, you're assuming, I mean, there's an assumption here that if you are so demonic that you want to murder elementary school children, that you would be deterred if you couldn't get an AR-15. That doesn't make any sense to me. I mean, you will find a way. Unfortunately, yeah. we live, the, there's evil in the world, right? Yeah, there's, that's certainly part of it, right? Is that one of the issues that a lot of people have with assault weapons bans in practice is that it takes that idea of, well, we see these guns used in mass shootings, so we should try to ban this gun because it must be particularly useful in a mass shooting because it, it keeps turning up in, in these high profile ones, right? That's the, that's the mm-hmm. thinking, that's the logic of it. And the problem with that is one that there's no, there, there, when you actually go into practice of trying to ban an AR-15 and the, the president's ATF director today was asked like what he supports assault and spans and he was asked what the definition is. And of course he didn't know, he didn't have one. And that, that's where it becomes problematic because most of these bans focus on cosmetic features, mostly things like the pistol grip or a flash suppressor, threaded barrel, you know, the, the tele, the, what, the, whether the scope of the, sorry, whether mm-hmm. the, the stock is telescope scoping. So whether it can move in and out to be adjusted for, you know, each individual person's arm length, you know, it focuses on things like that because that's what makes the AR 15 look different from your uncle's hunting rifle and as as you noted with the president, a lot of sort of gun politics on the left revolves around this idea that hunting is okay and really the only legitimate reason to own guns. And so they don't necessarily want to enact a ban so broad as to ban popular hunting rifles, but they're trying to focus on this gun and the way they generally do that is by the looks of it. Right. And, and then you get into obviously the problem is that's not what makes the gun lethal right and and it's not clear to me that if somebody used like the there's been lots of incidents where people use handguns of course and they're semi-automatic they're they're equally as deadly like it's not when you're shooting against defenseless people when you're just slaughtering people and especially children like there's no real significant advantage to using one gun over another in, in a lot of cases. Right. Uh, and that, that's one of the problems is like, I understand the impulse of seeing this gun in the, using these incidents and thinking that something about that gun must be particularly dangerous, especially again, because another thing you'll hear is right. That it was used. It's been employed this, a similar design. Obviously there's difference between the civilian AR 15 and a military M4, but similar design used in the military. So people get this idea that it's particularly lethal. And I don't know that that's actually true is one of the problems. I want to get to something else that the president said, which was that, you know, for God's sakes, when are we going to stand up to the gun lobby? And I heard that and I said, well, you know, the gun lobby is not doing too well. They just filed for bankruptcy last year after, you know, the state attorney general of New York ordered that they be dissolved because of her prosecution where she found, I think, legitimately a lot of corruption from the leadership and Wayne LaPierre and of the NRA. And it seems to me that, you know, if you look at the actual contributions that the NRA makes to politicians, it really pales compared to the other really big lobbies in Washington, you know, the NRA has become a kind of 
you know, an easy scapegoat after these mass shootings. And I have plenty of criticisms for their corruption and everything else, but you know, 5 million members, 5 million people who are part of that organization because they want to continue to have the right to own guns. And it's a popular issue, as you pointed out. So it seems that like they're the problem is, is that you've got a lot of Americans who maybe wouldn't say this as bluntly as I'm about to, but basically believe that the risk of mass shooting does not outweigh their liberty to defend their, their homes and their families and themselves. And that, you know, it's an America's Americans can make that choice. Right. I mean, it seems to be because it's a, that is a fairly popular issue. It's not just something like I think red state people think it's a lot of people think that. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah, I think for the average gun owner, the thought process is probably less that they're, you know, explicitly or tacitly accepting that mass shootings are going to happen if you have gun rights and more that they don't view the actions of, you know, these often very troubled or, or even mentally, severely mentally ill people's, you know, decisions to go and, and kill innocent people as connected to their gun ownership, right? That that's right. Where I, that's, that's one big disconnect in this whole conversation is like a lot of people don't own guns or, or, you know, strong gun control advocates view the basic concept of gun ownership as inherently connected to mass shootings, whereas, you know, gun owners don't view it that way. And in fact, oftentimes something like a mass shooting happening would make, you know, somebody who's believes in self-defense with firearms more inclined to own guns because they view it as a, you know, a failure by the system to be able to protect people. Right. That is common, common way that, that, that gets uh, adjudicated. But as far as the NRA, you know, I, I, the NRA has been for a long time and still remains today, uh, shorthand for gun owners generally. Right. And then, and it's understandable to a certain degree because they have 5 million, not just 5 million members, right? But 5 million dues paying members, people who will give them money to be part right. of the organization. That's really big thing. It's like a lot of groups can claim to have 5 million people on their newsletter list or, or mailing list or whatever, but it's, it's different when somebody has paid you money to be part of your organization. And uh, that sort of gives you a, a, there's not a lot of groups that, that can say that I, I would, I would imagine in DC. And so, you know, that's why you get a lot of people who view that group as, as a shorthand for gun owners, but it's not necessarily always the case, right? Because certainly objectively, the NRA has been having a very hard time due to internal struggles with, you know, these corruption allegations against Wayne LaPierre and other members of leadership. And I think that has significantly impacted their actual real world power. Mm -hmm. I mean, they've had to literally lay off hundreds of people at certain points. COVID was also a contributor to that, but, but you know, they're, they're tied up in court. All the things you mentioned, they filed for bankruptcy, even though they're technically not bankrupt financially. It was, they want to move the taxes, right? Yeah. It was part of their whole fight with New York over the corruption allegations. But, but so I think it's clear that their political power is probably waning over the last four years, whereas gun owners, gun ownership has increased in that time. And so there's, there is a bit of a disconnect between 
the NRA and the power of gun owners generally. It's not a one for one and not, sure. not nearly as much as it used to be. And that's why it was, that's why well, it, it also assumes that every Republican who opposes various gun control measures, and that's not even true. There's some gun control measures that Republicans support mm-hmm. does so because they're bought off as if there was right. this huge political majority for the obviously moral position. And I think that it's much more of a live debate and that there, there is, it's something that is deeply embedded in American culture. I am not part of gun culture for, for whatever it's worth. I, but I understand that it's a big country and there are a lot of places in this country. And there are a lot of people in this country who just believe that the government has no right to take their guns away. Mm -hmm. And it's, and that's why Republicans are not responding you know, to a kind of pernicious special interest, they're responding to a lot of, to oftentimes their voters. Right. But it's much easier to just say that they're bought off by the NRA because uh, it's a much simpler position. Right. It implies that it implies that there really isn't a, a kind of, there isn't, but, but maybe right. you could, you could in this, and then I want to get on one, touch on one other thing. Make, make the kind of first principle moral argument for why it's, it's wrong to, 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 ban weapons or ban guns in this country. Like overall, all guns. Yeah. Like make the argument for like, why, 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 you know, that, 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 you know, Europe has it wrong. So sure. I mean, certainly, you know, it's obviously hard to to focus on these things in the immediate aftermath of a, of a horrible shooting. It's all the more reason by the way to do it because in moments like this, when we are responding emotionally, it's it's deeply wounding, you know, that's the, that's the moment when you have to sort of say, wait a second. It's a complicated yeah. question. And so I, I think the argument would be, uh, and what you'll hear a lot from gun rights advocates, is that guns are not nece- not even a necessary evil. They're more of a positive good when you balance how frequently they're used in self-defense to how commonly they're used in criminal acts, which, uh, you know, there are a number of studies that have tried to estimate how frequently the, you know, self-defense firearms incidents are happen in the United States. And these can vary, of course, from actual shootings to, you know, just warning someone that you have a firearm, but there's between 500,000 and two and a half million is, is the number scale. It's obviously a pretty wide range, but even at the low end of that estimate, that's still far more than the criminal use of firearms in the United States. So Firearms are, of course, when you get down to the very bare argument for them, the, the great equalizer, right? That's, that's what the old saying about, you know, God created man and Samuel, Samuel Colt made them equal because firearms allow people to not have to depend on their own physical right. ability to fight somebody off in, in an encounter. Now, obviously they're a tool and can be used to negatively as well to as we are very well aware today to, to slaughter people. And so, you know, the key is trying to keep guns away from people who are uh, inclined to commit those sorts of crimes. And while we we, we don't really have a good answer for that though, as we've shown, you can have red flag laws in States and you can even have a, I mean, the guy in Buffalo was in a mental incident. I mean, he was hospitalized. Yeah. And they still didn't flag him so that he couldn't yep. purchase guns. It's true. You know, 
as you pointed out in an earlier conversation today with me, hey, you know, both of the latest, the last two mass shooters passed background checks. They bought their guns legally. It's not a matter. It's not, there isn't some sort of I mean, I, I hate to use the term silver bullet, but there isn't a simple solution that everybody isn't doing. Be, I mean, it's it's a hard question in that regard. There isn't. Yeah, and that's absolutely true. And and to that point, the there's sort of the pro gun argument of that everyone. Sh- if more people were armed, this would happen less. Or that no. there's don't yeah, yeah. attack gun free zones is not a, a bulletproof uh, argument either, as we've seen with both the Buffalo and Texas shootings, where there were armed good guys who did fire back, and it didn't. Unfortunately, didn't, it didn't stop. Yeah, it did. There, stop now, it. there have there have most certainly been circumstances where that has been the case. So I'm not, I'm not saying it's with all of these things. I don't think there's a, a, right. a, a com- that they're complete loss. It's just the question of like, oh, when someone presents you as this idea that there's a simple solution, we just do this one thing mm-hmm. and these, this issue solved. That's, I, I don't, I, I unfortunately don't see that being the case. I do think that if we did a better job of enforcing current law and, you know, got people like this shooter, especially the Buffalo shooter in the system to where they are no longer able to own firearms based on their evidence of their own behaviors, right? Where civil rights and and, uh, civil liberties are still protected in that process that you could, it would at the very least make it more difficult for them to carry out these sorts of attacks. Okay, I want to, before we, before I let you go, Stephen, and thank you so much for your time, I want to ask just about the constitutionality of what Biden proposed, the assault, an assault weapons ban. And I, Mm. I asked that in light of the Heller decision of 2008, which overturned a DC law that pretty much banned handguns in the district of Columbia, my hometown. So my question to you is, even if they managed miraculously to get those 10 Republicans or they had some procedural thing where they further weakened the filibuster or whatever they did, and let's say they got a federal law on the books, what are the chances that that would pass the muster of a conservative Supreme Court? Yeah, I I mean, I don't think the chances are good, but here's what I would say about that. I know that Heller allowed for, you didn't say no, there can be no gun control. Right. right, Scalia's decision, right? I mean, it was certainly, yeah, yeah, no, and, and and they went out of their way to. It was very much a compromise ruling that established an individual right to keep and bear arms, especially in circumstance of owning a handgun, the most popular gun for self defense within your own home. That was what Heller was about, and McDonald as well, which extend, expanded that to the states. But the court hasn't had a significant second amendment ruling since that time they are right now considering a gun carry case out of new york where they're likely to expand the scope of the second amendment in that earlier their interpretation of the second amendment at least and what i would say is that it's if that case were heard if a case against an assault weapons ban which there are cases pending right now uh maryland's assault weapons ban has been upheld at the circuit level so is california's so you know, the, there's been lower courts that have struck down these laws only to have them upheld on appeal. Mm-hmm. Uh, but if the court took up a case, it's very likely, given the the makeup of the court now, that they would strike down an assault weapons ban because of the Heller's basic principle was that handguns are in common use for lawful purposes. 
So they're protected under the Second Amendment. And it's hard to imagine that AR-15s are, don't, wouldn't fall into that same right. category because of how popular they are and, and how most people actually use them in real life, even even though, as you know, we've seen these examples of, of horrible shootings used with them. But the court also has, hasn't ruled in a major gun case since Heller and McDonald, which was 12 years ago now. And we never know if it's just going to become skittish about taking up these cases again. So that's one thing I would leave you with there. So finally, I mean, I guess I would say I, I am persuaded by a column that Brett Stevens wrote, which I talk about in my monologue. It must have been five years ago now where he just sort of makes the argument says, listen, I'm for gun control. So let's start a movement to repeal the second amendment. And I, I like it that I like that argument for constitutional reasons. I think it, I think it's an honest and straightforward way of addressing that. Mm -hmm. What would you say? I mean, I'm assuming that you would oppose the repeal of the second amendment. Well, personally, certainly. Yeah. You would personally oppose it, but I mean, yeah, I mean, to, I, I guess I would ask you to sort of imagine, like, you know, do you feel that maybe that would be the kind of, you know, I don't know, like, there are a lot of people who disagree on that point. And, you know, is it possible maybe to persuade some of these gun owners that, you know, enough is enough, but constitutionally, this is the sort of way that way to do it? I, I what I would say is that's probably a gun rights activists would view that as a more honest approach to the debate okay. because a lot of them view most of these laws as unconstitutional. Now, you know, of course, a lot of gun control people would view, would certainly argue that, you know, the assault with bins are constitutional because they've been upheld by federal courts. You know, it really very much depends on your interpretation of the second amendment. You know, but I just think leaving, leaving it aside that, 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 you, but, but you, you're sort of, I mean, it, would there be a limit in your view? Like, would there, is there, it, well, I don't know. What if, what if we saw mm -hmm. an even greater spike in these kinds of mass shootings? Is there anything mm -hmm. that you would see that would sort of say, you know what? I, 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 it's a hard choice, but I, I guess at this point, I support the idea that, you know, we shouldn't have guns, you know, available period. Personally, no, okay. because, because it's, uh, you know, and I think a lot of gunners view it this way because it's this. The Second Amendment is protecting your right to self-defense, and if you're denying them the practical means to self-defense, then you're denying that right. And so that you know this this comes down to a rights issue for a lot of people, and not everyone, of course. And I'm sure there are you know millions of people in the country who would want to repeal the Second Amendment and ban all guns. Like it, I don't think that they're anywhere near a majority, but but you know there's disagreement over, but but. If you, there are many people, probably many more people who view guns as a means to carry out their right to self-defense. Uh, and so if you tried to ban those firearms, uh, yeah. they would view that as, as uh, a violation of their rights, perhaps even to the point of tyranny. I mean, this is quite literally what started the revolutionary war here in America, the, the, Concord and Lexington was fought over an attempt to confiscate firearms or powder supplies from the colonists at the time, you know, like that's when the shot heard around the world was fired. So the, the sure they were revolting because they, they wanted King George to do more content moderation. <laughs> I'm joking, everybody. But you know, that there's a very, this is another thing to consider about United States when it comes to gun control. It's, we aren't Australia. We're not Canada. We're not yeah, uh, New Zealand, like we have a very distinct history 
here that starts with a armed revolution to uh, fight a bloody war for our independence and rights. And so that, and we have a very high reverence for the Bill of Rights, which is where the Second Amendment is included. So, uh, you know, you can't just ignore all of this context in America. I see. What, right? I, I, so, so, I mean, would it be fair? I mean, I know that we're right on the heels of a horrible tragedy, and I don't want to minimize it in any way. But is the honest position from the kind of pro-gun ownership side that there are, there are not really any good and easy solutions and we can keep trying our best to identify people with mental illness. We can keep trying to have better background checks and doing all kinds of things to do our best to try to keep these ha- keep guns out of the hands of, of psychos. But it's just going to be there's evil in the world. We're never going to have a perfect solution. And sadly, we're just going to have to accept that this is the this is this is the downside of our freedom and right to own guns. Well, certainly, I think that most everyone, you know, as we talked about earlier, believes that there is some way to decrease the likelihood of these things happening. Right? Sure. We we uh, hope we hope, but and that there's a select. You know, yeah. everyone has their favorite policy for how they do it, and pro gun people obviously have uh, certain their own policies in that regard too. stricter enforcement of current law, you know, involuntarily involuntary commitment, making various public targets harder to actually attack without resistance. You know, there's a whole list of things, but certainly I, I, yeah, I think at a certain level, the, the idea that you could ever completely get rid of mass killings is hard to square with reality. It's utopian. Because, yeah, because, you know, yes, you could look at other countries where they have gun bans and say they don't have mass shootings as frequently as we do, but certainly they often will, they still have mass killings. And, uh, you know, there was somebody who set a anime studio on fire in in Japan a couple of years ago and killed dozens of people that way. You know, there was the, the truck driver terrorists in France a few years back. Yeah. So like, and then there's, even in a place like France, you know, terrorists were still able to get guns and kill people at Charlie Hebdo. Like, there is no legislative solution to outline yeah, evil, right? And and I and that's also, a, it's unfortunate. Like we don't necessarily, you know, and, there's no, yeah. And it's kind of the reason. It's also an underpinning for why people would want to own guns. This is one reason why gunnership actually increases, sales increase after mass shootings or terrorist attacks because people not only are they concerned about potential bans but they're also want to be able to protect themselves at least have the option to do it right you know you can say point out that you know the the security guard in buffalo or the police officers in texas were unable to actually stop those attacks before they took a lot of people's lives but Certainly, I think most people would have the option of being able to try and defend themselves at the very least. It's no guarantee that being armed is going to mean you will come out on top against the bad guy. The good guy with a gun does not always win. That's reality. But a lot of the underpinnings of gun ownership is that people would like to at least be able to try. They would rather have the ability to defend themselves than be caught in a situation relying on other people to defend them because it's, there's, 
that also is not a guarantee, of course, either. Well, with that, I just want to say thank you so much to Stephen Gutowski. I would urge our listeners to read his newsletter, The Reload, for especially if you are, you know, kind of of the very cosmopolitan view that we need more gun control because he is such a good journalist and he writes without, you know, kind of fear and without, you know, favor for, 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 for particular groups. He, he's coming at it journalistically. He has his convictions, but it's really important to understand the other side of the debate. And I am so grateful for your time. And also, please give us five stars on Apple. Write us nice reviews. We, we, we really appreciate it here at The Reeducation. Thank you so much, Stephen. It was great to have you. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. This has been The Reeducation with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.